This talk, by necessity and design, builds on my previous lecture, uh, which would be suspected, I hope. Uh, it also builds on the work that, that Jerry laid in both of his uh, talks, and so good <laughs> to hear Jerry's voice and to hear him deliver his paper <laughs> this morning. Uh, Alex, you did a great job, but, you know, a uh, great opportunity to hear from, from Jerry. Glad he made it in the midst of the challenges of traveling yesterday. Of course, in my talk yesterday, I cast a fairly broad vision for monastic catechesis according to the rule of Benedict, as you'll remember. I hinted at and I gestured towards application, but I did try to pull up a bit short. You may have thought I didn't pull up short enough, but I, I, from my estimation, I was pulling up a bit short on the application of what I was saying. There in that paper, as you may recall, humility was the goal and stability, fidelity, and obedience were the means to achieve that goal of humility. In this talk, I want to provide a more stable theological foundation for thinking about how to bridge the gap between the monastery and the parish. And not institutionally, for I do think that we need to continue having historic forms of of monasticism, and we need monasteries available for those who are called into the cloister. But I'm less interested in the gap between the institutions of the parish and the monastery, and I'm more interested in Um, the spiritual, theological connection between those two. In his conferences, the great 5th century monastic theologian, John Cashin, wrote that the explanation for monasticism's existence was because those first Christians who were eager to pray together, break bread together, and have all things in common had died. And in their place were believers less, less fervent in their devotion. That's what Cashin says. Those first believers, Acts 2 and 4, They were 100% in. Soon enough, however, next generation, you didn't have that anymore. So these fervent men and women packed up and moved to the deserts in order to continue in the spirit of the earliest Christians. In other words, this is a bit of the narrative that Jerry was talking about in his first paper and in his book, which I commend to you, I just read it this week, Resilient Faith, about Christendom. Some sort of lukewarmness sets in, but these fervent Christians pack up and moved to the deserts. That's Origen's uh, narrative of monasticism, uh, the institution. Um, so again, in other words, monasticism was the result, ultimately, of lukewarmness and complacency. If that was the case, then the institution of monasticism would have a fairly sad birth narrative and a fairly weak foundation for existence. Right? In other words, we only have monks and nuns because there's fervent, devo- fervently devoted people and not fervently devoted people. But that is, in fact, not the case. Cashin's assessment makes for good reading, but it is not historically accurate. The how and the why of monasticism's genesis is complex, a combination of both historical circumstances and divine action. Its reason or reasons for continuing may also be multifaceted, but it seems reasonable to me to see the need for monasticism as intimately connected to the work that God is doing in the lives of particular people. People whom God is calling to be the next monks and nuns. People who will need a place to live out their calling. Monasticism in its institutional form is as necessary today as it has always been because God keeps calling people to a monastic vocation. And until he stops calling people to live as monks and nuns, there will continue to be a need for monasteries and for the institution of monasticism. 
But is this the kind of institutionalized version of monasticism, the Christian church's only option? Is this the only way we can think of what it means to be a monk? The short answer is no. The long answer is written in the book, The Monkhood of All Believers. So the apothegmata patrum, or the sayings of the desert fathers, uh, which Jerry alluded to, is a catch-all term and category for short, pithy statements made by monks living in the early monastic deserts of Egypt, Syria, Palestine, and other places. There are hundreds of these statements preserved for us today. Hundreds of these pithy statements. One goes like this, and it's a fairly long quotation, but I believe it's in the, in the program. So you can follow along there. Once, when Abba Macarius was praying in his cell, a voice came to him saying, Macarius, you have not yet attained the stature of those two women of this city. The elder got up early, took his palm wood staff, and began to make the journey to the city. When he got there and identified the place, he knocked at the door. One of the women came out and invited him into the house. He sat there for a little while, then the other woman came. When he invited them to approach, they did so, seating themselves beside him. The elder said to them, It is on your account that I have put up with the journey and so much toil in getting here from the desert. Now, tell me about your work. What kind is it? Believe us, Father, they told him. We have not been absent from our husband's beds to this very day. What sort of work do you expect of us? That's a nice way of saying we're married women and you're a celibate monk, right? What are you here to ask us what our work is? The elder apologized to them and begged them, saying, Show me the way you live. At which they told him, We are unrelated to each other in the worldly sense. But it happened that we were married to two natural brothers, and look, today we have been living in this house for 15 years. We are not aware of ever having quarreled or spoken a shameful word. It crossed our mind to leave our husbands and to join the ranks of the virgins, but despite frequent pleading on our part, our husbands did not agree to release us. (laughs) So, frustrated in that project, we took an oath to each other and before God, that we, would not, that we would let no secular talk pass our lips until we died. When Abba Macarius heard this, he said, Truly, there is no virgin or married woman or monk or worldling, but God looks for a deliberate choice, and he gives the Holy Spirit to everybody. What is particularly relevant for us in this saying is the positive evaluation that these two women receive from Macarius, despite being women who live in the world. It's not because they're women, it's because they're women who live in the world, as opposed to living in a monastery or some sort of a monastic desert setting. Abba Macarius is so taken aback by their holiness that he explains that there is no distinction between the virgin, the married woman, a monk, or a person of the world, or in that translation, a worldling. Given our 21st century context, such an assessment does not strike us as particularly revelatory or shocking. But in Macarius' late 3rd century monastic context, this would have caused quite the scandal, if you will. But it is true, oh sorry, but is it true, or is this just the exclamation of an overly excited monk? So again, we, we wouldn't think anything of that assessment of Macarius. But for the time, it was scandalous. 
But is he just overly excited? Or is there something true to this? To get at an answer to this question, we need an answer to another question, which is, what is a monk? Monks by the mid-fourth century were men and women who shared a common vision of the Christian life, though they lived out their monastic vocations in different ways. And we are not talking about a few men and women here and there. It is important to see that the institution of monasticism was not some sort of fringe movement on the periphery of the Christian church. Nothing is further from the truth. Not only was monasticism prominent, but it was also pervasive, with monasteries located in cities such as Rome and Jerusalem, in towns like Bethlehem, in deserts like Egypt and Sinai, on islands like the island of Lorraine off of the coast of southern France, in caves such as St. Sabas in Palestine, and even up on pillars in Syria. If you've heard of Simeon Stylites, he lived on top of a pillar. Then he said, this isn't quite far enough, let's add another 10 feet. This isn't quite far enough, let's add another 10 feet. So at some point he's living quite high on this pillar. Though exact or even accurate estimations of the number of monks in the first four centuries would be impossible to validate, it is generally agreed upon that the largest monasteries were likely those in the Pacomian Federation located in Upper Egypt. John Cashin, whom we have already encountered, describes one of these Pacomian monasteries in his institutes. There he writes, quote, In the first place, we shall attempt, as briefly as we can, to deal with the conditions under which those who desire to turn to God are received into monasteries, joining together some aspects of the rules of the Egyptians and some of those as the uh, Tabanesiost. Their monastery in the Tebed is more populous than all others, for in it more than 5,000 brothers are ruled by a single Abba. And this huge number of monks is subject at every moment to their elder. Likewise, the church historian Palladius says this in his Lausiac history. Now there are a number of these monasteries which have observed this rule amounting to 7,000 men. But the first and great monastery is that where Pacomius himself dwelt, which itself also is the parent of other monasteries. It has 1,300 members. But there are also other monasteries, 200 or 300 strong. One of these with 300 monks I found when I entered the city of Panopolis. They also had a monastery of women with some 400 members. And then when he turns to describe Lower Egypt, Palladius writes, quote, So then, after my visit to the monasteries around Alexandria, with their 2,000 or so most noble and zealous members, in my three years sojourn there, I left them and went to the mountain of Nitria. Between this mountain and Alexandria lies the lake called Maria, seven miles in extent. Having sailed across this, I came to the mountain on its south side in a day and a half. Next to this mountain lies the great desert, which stretches as far as Ethiopia. On the mountain live some 5,000 men with different modes of life, each living in accordance with his own powers and wishes, so that it is allowed to live alone or with another or with number of others. So many monks moved out into the deserts of Egypt that Athanasius of Alexandria quipped that the desert was made a city. We can conclude then, with some degree of certainty, that though these numbers may be exaggerated, 
They are indicative that the institution of monasticism was fairly large by the 4th century, and the geographic extent of monasticism was also vast, extending literally from one end of the Christian world to the other. So there are thousands, tens of thousands of men and women living as monks by the 4th century. And by the way, the word monks is now used to refer to both men and women. It's not a gender term anymore. So matter of fact, most female monks don't want to be called nuns. Um, They want to be called monks. So I'll just keep using monks mostly to refer to both genders. Okay, so we know it's vast, right, from from the extant sources. We know that there's tens of thousands of men and women living in these communities. But let's also think about its genesis, So there is no date to which the beginnings of monasticism can be assigned with any certainty. Some date the beginning of the institution of monasticism to the narrative in Acts 2, 42 through 47. They, these early Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Those who see this as the start of monasticism do so based in particular on verse 44's testimony that these early Christians held everything in common. Yet this is a misreading of the historical facts concerning monasticism. It is true that poverty, both communal poverty and personal poverty, came to be foundational for monasticism. But this is only after monasticism had taken on a more institutional form in the early 4th century. So again, if you think that it's constitutive of monasticism to be poor, then when you read verse 44's line about poverty, you'll say, oh, there's monasticism. Right? It kind of begs the question, though. Like you're, you've decided what monasticism is, so you go looking for it. And then lo and behold, you find it. Others, for example, so that's John Cashin's foundation, right? Is that Acts narrative. But again... He said, and then the next generation was less fervent, so the fervent people had to move to the deserts. Others, for example, often date the founding of monasticism to a a monk of the 4th century named Anthony, who we also encountered earlier. We now know him as Anthony of Egypt or Anthony the Hermit. Anthony was converted when he heard Matthew 19.21 being read in church. Jesus said to the rich young man, "'If you will be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor.'" and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. He also then heard on another day the reading from Mark 6, 30, Matthew 6, 34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. So, hearing those two gospel passages, he responded by giving up all his earthly belongings and becoming a monk. But this theory that he's the original first monk is easily proven wrong when you just read the life of Anthony written by Athanasius of Alexandria. There, Athanasius writes, quote, Anthony henceforth devoted himself outside his house to discipline, taking heed to himself and training himself with patience. For there were not yet so many monasteries in Egypt, and no monk at all knew of the distant desert. But all who wished to give heed to themselves practiced the discipline in solitude near their own village. 
Now there was then in the next village an old man who had lived the life of a hermit from his youth up. Anthony, after he had seen this man, imitated him in piety. In quotation. Notice that Anthony put himself under the tutelage of an old man. That is, Anthony learned how to be a monk from a monk. Thus, he cannot be credited with being the first monk. So instead of discussing when monasticism may have started, it would be more fruitful to describe what monasticism looked like in its early expression. Cashin describes four types of monasticism that were prevalent in his own time. Cenobites, those who live in the monastery. Anchorites, those who live alone. The Sarabates, who live only for themselves. And then this group that he calls monks of a short-lived fervor. Conference 18, he writes, There are three kinds of monks in Egypt, of which two are admirable. The third is a poor sort of thing, and by all means to be avoided. The first is that of Cenobites, who live together in a community and are governed by the direction of a single elder. And of this kind, there is the largest number of monks dwelling throughout the whole of Egypt. The second is that of the Anchorites, who are first trained in the Cenobium, and then, being made perfect in practical life, choose the resources, the recesses of the desert. We too have chosen to be part of this profession. The third kind of monk is the reprehensible ones of the Cerebates. And of these, we will discourse in order and at greater length. Cashin continues by explaining that the Cenobites took its rise at the time of the apostolic preaching, that is, around the time of Acts 2. Because of this, he believes that they are the most ancient kind of monks. The Anchorites, he traces back initially to Paul the Hermit, whose life was written by Jerome, um, who died in 420, uh, he also traces anchorites back to Anthony. In his desire to go even further, however, Cashin writes that the anchorites live in imitation of John the Baptist, who spent his whole life in the desert, and of Elijah and Elisha and the others whom the apostle call, and the others whom the apostle recalls. Thus, they went about in sheepskin and in goatskin, in distress, afflicted, needy the world unworthy of them, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and caverns of the earth, from Hebrews 11. Right, so the Cenobites go back to the apostolic preaching, the Anchorites go back to Paul the Hermit and to Anthony, and then he continues that the Cerebates are those who withdraw themselves from the communities of the monastery and as individuals cared for their own needs. This, Cashin states, is an imitation of Ananias and Sapphira's actions in Acts 5, 1 through 10 where the couple holds back some money for themselves. In short, self-sufficiency is not a highly valued virtue for Cashin. The fourth kind of monk is described by Cashin this way, also in Conference 18. Quote, There is, however, another and a fourth kind, which we have lately seen springing up, among those who flatter themselves with the appearance and form of anchorites, and who in their early days seem in a brief fervor to seek the perfection of the synobium, but presently cool off. And as they dislike to put an end to their former habits and faults and are not satisfied to bear the yoke of humility and practice patience any longer and scorn to be in subjection to the rule of the elders, look out for separate cells and want to remain by themselves alone, that as they are provoked by nobody, they may be regarded by men as patient, gentle, and humble. 
And this arrangement, or rather this lukewarmness, never suffers those of whom it has once got hold to attain to perfection. So remember in Jerry's talk earlier, he talks about when you're by yourself, it's easy to say, look at me. Yeah, spiritual athlete Greg over here. But the moment you introduce people into your life, it's like, oh, look at me, not doing so great. So the Sarabates like to be alone so that they can feel good about themselves. Cashin understands that there are four kinds of monks, but only views the Cenobites and the Anchorites positively. So, in essence, there are really only two legitimate kinds of monks. So, there are many monks in the early church, some of whom choose a kind of lifestyle that is derided by monastic theologians like John Cashin, whereas other forms are looked at favorably. But are there monks primarily because they became an institution by the 4th century? Like, is that why we have so many monks? Because there's an institution, right? That is, since there is an institution of monasticism, is there now the need for men and women to inhabit that institution? Or is there a way to think of monks apart from the historical institutional forms? To me, it seems so. In the words of Christoph Jost, the 4th century monks are not simply alone in the sense of being unmarried or something like that, but they were people who have turned their hearts completely to God. They have oriented themselves unwaveringly toward one single cause. Joseph continues, We can see that during the first centuries, Christians considered someone called monk to be a person who was focused exclusively on God with his or her innermost heart in life who lived unmarried by himself or herself and essentially renounced personal property. Though monasticism is associated historically with celibacy and other forms of asceticism, like poverty, stability, unwavering obedience, single-mindedness is another consistent element of monasticism and the one that seems to be the more essential in the earliest tradition. So again, like, we ask the question, are there monks because they were monasteries? Right? Build it and they will come. Or is there another way to think about monasticism? And Jost thinks there is another way, and that's to think of, well, what all these monks, even if they are in monasteries, have in common is single-mindedness. Another scholar named Hannah Hunt says that for the Greeks, the word monikos Describe the way of life of a man devoting his life to a singleness of purpose. Devotion to and contemplation of God. The monocos might lead a solitary life, but in any event would maintain a single focus, undeflected by material considerations. Though the word monk is often seen as synonymous with one who is single or celibate, that is not the oldest understanding of the word, especially if, like John Cashin and Augustine of Hippo, one draws a straight line between early monasticism and Acts 2 and 4. What these early believers had in common was not celibacy, but the sharing of material resources and a common exercise of spiritual practices. Thus, to be a monk is to be one, not divided. 
to be unified in one's goal of coming into union with God. Though many believers live in a multitudinous manner, a monk will set himself apart by living simply and singly. In the end, a monk is one who is single-minded. He or she possesses a unity of mind and heart. So again, it's not about the institution. It's about the inner disposition, single-mindedness. And that seems to be what the original meaning of the word monokos, where we get our word monk, comes from. So yesterday I suggested that when you hear the word monk, the immediate image that's probably conjured up in your mind is a Benedictine monk, right? A man or a woman in a dark habit. That might be uh, the thing. But then you would also, I think we also hear the word monk, and we immediately think of someone who's single or celibate, unmarried. And that, of course, has become part of the institutionalization of monasticism. But again, in Acts 2 and 4, that is not what the people have in common. That is not what makes them united in one heart and mind. But let me further illustrate this with an example from Augustine of Hippo. In Augustine's hands, Psalm 132, which is our 133, becomes a treatise on the monastic life. For Augustine, the text reads like this. See how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Like a fragrant oil upon the head, flowing down upon the beard, Aaron's beard, the oil that flowed down to the border of his tunic. Like the dew of Hermon, which flows down to the mountains of Zion, for there has the Lord ordained blessing, life forever. After noting the beauty and the brevity of the psalm, Augustine asked, Are the ones who dwell in unity certain particular individuals who have reached maturity and enjoy a blessing granted to them, but not to all, even though it does distill from them to the rest? Right, so that's his question. Are the ones who dwell in unity certain particular people, individuals, who have reached a maturity and enjoy a blessing from God, that's the oil flowing down, and through them, by them, that oil flows to others as well? Augustine immediately picks up on the top-to-bottom movement of the psalm and wonders, who are these brothers at the top that will become a source of blessing and a source of spiritual nourishment to those below them? Without hesitation, he says that these are the church's monks and even goes so far as to say that this psalm has given birth to monasteries. I mean, literally, he says this psalm, quote, has given birth to monasteries. He writes, Brothers and sisters who long to live as one were awakened by the song. This verse roused them like a trumpet, says Augustine. In essence, what Augustine is doing is taking the whole of salvation history and making it a story of monastic history. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that psalm, I wouldn't think of monasticism at all, right? But he's picking up on that dwell together in unity language. So Augustine's argument is this in the sermon. One, God's salvific call rang out through all the world. 
Second, yet this call was not heard in Judea because they were deaf to the sound of it. Right? So God called everyone into a saving relationship with him, but some were deaf to the sound of it. Third, others like the prophets, the apostles, the 500 who witnessed Jesus' resurrection, the 120 believers who were gathered in the upper room, for example, those people heard the call and responded. And it's those people that gave birth to the Christian church at Pentecost. Right? So in other words, God's salvific call rang out around the world. Right? That's, that's like early Old Testament history. But then Israel didn't respond as a nation. But there were groups of people, the prophets, the apostles, the 500, etc., who did, in fact, respond to that. And it's those people who gave birth to the Christian church. And why did the Holy Spirit descend on these believers at Pentecost? Well, Augustine believes that it is because they were gathered together in one place. Thus, those who long to live as one gather together in one place and began to live together as one. That's Augustine's thinking. Those who long to live as one gather together in one place and then began to live together as one. That's the sharing all things in common, praying together. They did not just live together. They lived together in unity, literally in the Latin, in unum, as one. And they did that by selling all their possessions and laying the proceeds at the feet of the disciples. So Augustine is referencing here a combination of Acts 2.45 and Acts 4.32 in which these early believers formed themselves into a community, holding all things in common. Moreover, this group of believers is not just unified around common possessions, but they're also unified by having one mind and one heart. It is these believers, united in mind, heart, and possessions, that, quote, hear effectively the psalm's words, See how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Desirous to move his history lesson further, Augustine reminds his readers that these Acts 2 and Acts 4 believers were the first, but not the only ones, to respond to God's call. In short, every subsequent monk was responding to the same summons to dwell together in unity. Again, quoting Augustine, the intense joy of charity came upon their descendants too, and with it the practice of vowing to God. While commenting on Psalm 132, Augustine does not hesitate to address a contemporary issue, that of a group of people called the Circumcellions. Though there is ongoing debate about the exact nature of these Circumcellions, it is clear that they were ascetics associated with the schismatic church in North Africa, which, of course, is Augustine's area where he's working. Augustine reasserts that monks derive their name from Psalm 132 and that the Circumcellions, instead of being monks themselves, simply hurl insults at those who are truly monks. In short, the Circumcellions are not monks because they do not dwell together in unity. Right, so this is in the same sermon. I mean, he picks, he's saying things about the Circumcellions because he's like, they act like they're monks, but they're not monks because they don't dwell together 
in unity. Yet how does Augustine derive from the phrase, brothers who dwell together in unity, the concept of monk, monos? He writes, quote, Monos means one, but not any kind of one. One person may be present in a crowd. He is one, but one with many others. He can be called one, but not monos, because monos means one alone. But where people live together in such unity that they form a single individual, where it is true of them, as Scripture says, that they have but one mind and one heart, many bodies but not many minds, many bodies but not many hearts, then they are rightly called monos. One alone, one alone. In essence, Augustine is simply saying that a monk is not a man who is alone in the sense of being completely separated from others. Nor is a monk a man or a woman who is alone in spite of being in the midst of others, like a lone shopper in a busy market. Rather, a monk is a man or a woman who is alone in the midst of a community that is already characterized by its oneness in mind and heart. So there are two important things to notice here. First, Augustine does not understand monk to mean alone, as in solitary. But a monk is a person who turns his heart and mind completely to God. And the second thing to notice is that one can only be a monk in the midst of a community. And not just any community, but one that is united in mind and heart. As Terence Cardon comments, quote, Augustine has become convinced that the real meaning of the word monk is unity with another person. Yet this unity with another person is not just with other monks or even with other Christians, but ultimately with God. So, if a monk is one who is single-mindedly focused on God while living alone in the midst of a community, then it seems reasonable to think of every Christian as a monk inasmuch as we are single-minded in our devotion to and pursuit of God. In our single-mindedness, we will cultivate virtues, like humility, for example, which is so essential for Benedict. But those elements of a robust monastic spiritual theology are secondary to the essence, to the telos of monasticism, which is single-mindedness. Further, and very importantly, as we saw from Augustine, this single-mindedness, this oneness is worked out in community. For monks who enter traditional monasteries, they work it out alongside their monastic confreres. Whereas for those of us who do not join historic monasteries, we work it out in the community of the church by way of our local parish. Okay, so if, if to be a monk is to be single-minded on God, but in a community of other single-minded people, right? So it's not about being alone, 
It's about being single-minded on God in the midst of a community where there are other single-minded people. So for traditional monks, that's in the monastery. That's the beauty of the monastery. And that's why there's always like the monastic enclosure. This area is not for you, other people. This is where the community can be together. But for those of us who aren't monks, which again, I think is most of us, if not all of us in the room in the, in the historic sense, then our oneness, our communal-based, community-based oneness would be with the church. So if that's true, in one sense, then all catechesis that's done in the church is monastic catechesis. Inasmuch as we are all monks, at least of a certain sort, moving towards single-mindedness. So, the topic is monastic catechesis in the parish. That's not about appropriating the rule of Benedict. That's about every person in the church is a monk. So when we're catechizing the parish, the people, the, the believers, we are catechizing monks. But let me say two things that I think in particular constitute a fully formed monastic catechesis in the parish. So that's, that's a theological foundation to say, if we're all monks of a certain sort, single-minded people, working out that single-mindedness in a singular, singularly focused community, right? then all catechesis in the parish is monastic. But I want to highlight two elements in particular of this monastic catechesis in the parish. First, as many, if not most of us know, catechesis, as we said yesterday in Harding Jerry's first paper, catechesis is not just about intellectual formation and growth in knowledge. Again, as Jamie Smith and others have shown, we are liturgical beings who do not only think, but primarily love. And we do this through habituated practices. Thus, one of the parish's first catechetical commitments ought to be the proper and right observance. And I'm going to be very Anglican here for a minute, so apologies to those who aren't Anglicans, but you can translate it mentally into your own context. One of our first catechetical commitments ought to be to the proper and right observance of the Book of Common Prayer and its vision for how we ought to live out our lives as Anglicans. Over the years, scholars have noted that Anglicanism has a monastic quality to it. I am also convinced that this is true. As the Benedictine monk, John B. Pauli writes, Roman Catholic Benedictine monk, John B. Pauli, as an aside, he's a monk at St. John's in Minnesota where I went to school. He's actually the one who tutored me in French so I could get my French back up to speed from high school to pass my language exams. I've been indebted to John B. Pauli for that. But he writes, Anglican identity is the expression of a monastically influenced theology of prayer and worship. Similarly, Bede Thomas Mudge writes, quote, Anglican piety depends heavily on the pre-Reformation monastic influence in England, and particularly that of the Benedictine communities. In particular, there are many liturgical similarities between monasticism and Anglicanism. Though it was most usual in the Middle Ages for monastics to pray seven times a day in community, the central services of worship, going all the way back to the patristic era, were morning and evening prayer. 
It is these times of prayer, along with the Eucharist, that became the central acts of worship in the Anglican tradition. Therefore, monastic theology and liturgical expression were inscribed and thus preserved in the Book of Common Prayer and also in the influential writings of the Caroline Divines. As John B. Pauley notes, quote, the BCP continued the basic monastic pattern of the Eucharist and the divine office in the form of matins, morning prayer, and evensong as the principal public forms of worship. This monastic quality to early Anglican liturgy seems to owe much to Thomas Cranmer's love of the Bible and of the patristic readings of Scripture that led him into a more monastic understanding of the liturgical hours. And here I quote Pauli again, Just as the monastic understanding of liturgical prayer in early monasticism emphasized listening to and being formed by the words of Scripture rather than singing and speaking them primarily in an attitude of praise, so too did Cramner believe that the Bible was the living word of God. His ideal was that the liturgy should play its significant role in encouraging everyone to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest holy writ. Right, so Anglicanism's genesis lies in monasticism. So as those Anglicans in the room, we get to cheat. It's already in our DNA. Our Book of Common Prayer preserves a kind of monastic liturgical ritual from the Middle Ages, right? But I, but I do think other traditions, right, can also see, and, it, and it's true, I mean, church history is of a whole, Right? Like what we do today is part of something that's been carried forward, right? So it might not be as explicit in other traditions, right? It might not be explicit in, in um, you know, a lot of traditions don't even use something like a book of common prayer. But I would suggest that, like, the monastic ethos, right, of daily prayer, right, centered around common worship. Community-based worship, parish worship, is this is what the church has always been doing. Okay, but again, Anglicanism has this great history to say, oh, wow, we, we are actually quite monastic in our genesis, right? And Cranmer thought, well, no farmer can pray seven times a day, but he could pray twice with his family, morning and evening prayer. And again, maybe everyone can't commune daily, but weekly, communion, or something like that. Okay, so that's just to say I I don't think I'm just speaking to Anglicans uh, in this regard. I think there's a way in which the history of the church shows how the monastic influence continues into many of the things we do today. But it was not only monastic liturgy that impacted Anglicanism, um, but also monastic practices. Again, quoting Pauli, for Anglicanism, the 17th century was also an era of order in religious practice. This meant, only, this meant not only the order of the liturgical hours, but also the order of other aspects of daily life in connection with prayer. Prayers were composed for everyday occasions, on walking, dressing, grace before meals, on starting a journey. This practice of prayers for the daily activities of life finds a counterpart in the rule of Benedict. 
As the rule strives to cultivate a habitual sense of the presence of God in alternating periods of prayer and work, so does the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, this is returned uh, back again into the modern church's thinking, like every moment holy. I think there's a book out there called Every Moment Holy. My wife just got it for Christmas. I mean, prayers for changing diapers, prayers for your morning cup of coffee. It's not a confession, but it's a prayer for it. So for some of us, it should probably be a confession. So, um, And then I think, um, uh, you know, the Liturgy of the Ordinary, um, uh, Tish Warren. Um, so again, it's, that's, that's back in the air again and not just among Anglicans, I think. Stability is another quality held in common between Benedictine monasticism and Anglicanism, I think. Both the Book of Common Prayer and Caroline's spirituality, while not asking the same vow of the clergy and the laity, presupposes a stable community. Talked about that yesterday. And the astute words of the Anglican pastoral theologian Martin Thornton, who Father Lee prophetically knew I would talk about today, it is again necessary, Thornton writes, to look at the historical setting. For the Book of Common Prayer is derived from a long line of ancestors, ultimately from the Benedictine rule, with which, ascetically, it has much in common. Both the Book of Common Prayer and the Rule of Benedict are designed to regulate the total life of a community, centered on the divine office, the mass, and continuous devotion as daily domestic life unfolds. Both are concerned with common, even family prayer. Neither are missals, breviaries, or lay manuals, because here the priest-lay division does not apply. They are common prayer, prayer for the united church or community. Thus, a first and obvious way to do monastic catechesis in the parish is to make full use of the Book of Common Prayer, which is a monastically inspired guide. That is, pray the daily offices in community as much as possible, observe the BCP-ordered, recommended fast days and holy days of obligation together as a parish, adhere to the daily office, and Eucharistic lectionaries, so that the parish, as a gathered community, not only hear the fullness of the Word of God read and preached, but that it is done in concert with the whole church of God. So again, that's, some of those are not unique to Anglicans. I mean, if you're not in an Anglican context, or you're in a context that doesn't use a lectionary, use the Revised Common Lectionary or something. Know that what scriptures you're hearing read, heard read and preached are being read and preached in churches all around the world at the same time. Monastic catechesis begins, at least for Anglicans, in our usage of the Book of Common Prayer in our common life. So that's the first thing I would want to say. If we're all monks, and therefore all catechesis in the parish is monastic catechesis because we're catechizing monks of the single-minded sort, then I think for Anglicans, it begins with good, faithful use of the Book of Common Prayer. One of the reasons I became an Anglican, I wasn't raised as an Anglican, I was raised as a Southern Baptist and was actually ordained a Baptist minister for 16 years before I became a priest. One of the things that attracted me to Anglicanism was, I'll say it bluntly for emphasis, like I was tired of making it up. I was tired of trying to think like, I don't know, i got to preach this week. What am I supposed to be doing? And I was never the, the head pastor of any of the churches I worked at. So, you know, okay, it's your, it's your week to preach. What are you going to preach on? 
you know, mine's a one-off thing. It wasn't this great, like, we sit down and talked about, you know, the, the sermon series arc or anything like that. So it felt like just, like, throw the Bible on a table. Wherever it falls open, I'm going to preach that, you know. And, and the Book of Common Prayer, or using it fully, doesn't allow you to do that because it tells you what you're supposed to be reading. It doesn't tell you what you're supposed to be preaching on, but it, got to come, it needs to come from those readings. So, again, that's not unique to, to Anglicanism. That's unique to, I think that could be something that we could all adopt and to be catechetical in that way, right? That if all of our people are praying to daily office using that lectionary, and then we are using a lectionary that is used across the church, we begin to form our people in that way. And it becomes part of that whole church, not just our local parish. So that's the first thing, and that's really an admonition to Anglicans in particular. Use the Book of Common Prayer in its fullness. Second, do not mistake the means for the end. That is, make the goal of your parish catechesis monastic by ensuring that its end, its telos, is single-mindedness and not something as mundane as confirmation preparation, for example. John Cashin is helpful here again. Cashin made a distinction between skopos and telos. So these are Greek words that he got to use, uh, that he adopted uh, from his time in the East, even though he writes in Latin, skopos and telos. Skopos, says Cashin, is a this-worldly end, whereas telos, as we often use it, is the final end. Thus, our telos as Christians, as monks, is single-mindedness. But our scopoi, our this-worldly ends, are those disciplines or practices that help us achieve our telos, our, our um, final end of single-mindedness. That is, I need to live in such a way that my marriage, for example provides this worldly ends that help me achieve the final end of single-mindedness. I need to cultivate virtues like humility for the final end of single-mindedness, not just for humility's sake itself, but for the final end, the telos of single-mindedness. I need to be catechized not only to know the creed, to be able to recite the Lord's Prayer and some basic theology. But I need to be catechized so as to be trained to live monastically, seeking and fervently pursuing single-mindedness. I mean, I don't know if any of us frame what we do in the parish in those terms. Like when we engage in our catechetical work or whatever word you use for that, that forming people intellectually. First of all, I hope it's not just intellectual. It's, it shouldn't be, but it also needs to be in character and in their person. But how many of us say, oh, this isn't, this isn't just so that you can have some answers when the bishop comes to see if you're confirmation ready. This is for the greater end of single-mindedness. What we're doing here has eternal consequences. Much less have we maybe given that vision to our catechists right? Your prep matters, right? Your own ongoing formation, which I encouraged us yesterday that every, catech- every 
catechists, everyone who does catechism needs to be formed as well, right? Because it's for this greater end of single-mindedness. So we should not limit catechesis to knowledge acquisition. But the other side of the coin is we also shouldn't limit it to just character formation, as important as that is. Rather, a properly understood and a properly executed monastic catechesis is concerned with the ultimate thing and not with any of the lesser goods that it may accomplish along the way. This is what separates good catechesis from traditional understandings of, say, something like a Sunday school. Again, things like knowing the Bible and understanding the sacramental nature of the Holy Eucharist are good. In fact, they're really good. Really good. But they are not the greatest good, who is God. So these things are learned for the sake of God. We are catechized for God's sake. Like, I love when one of my kids, like, says something that's just spot-on theologically accurate, right? Uh, this was just Nathaniel, Christine, and I, one night this past week, something came up at dinner. Brendan is, now he's in college, who knows where he was at, but uh, um, he was not eating with us, I can tell you that. So the three of us are at the table. I was just a little frustrated that day with something that had happened with a parishioner, and um, so I, I voiced my frustration, not that I was frustrated with the parishioner, but about the thing that I was frustrated with. And before I knew it, like, like Nathaniel and Christina had like said this stuff that I thought, like, say it again. I'm going to record it and just play it for people. Right? It was a very proud moment as a husband and father there. Right? Those are great things. I, I, I want my parishioners to know answers to questions. I want them to be able to recite the creed from memory, to obviously know the Lord's Prayer, to, to maybe even notice that when we're praying in office in community that not everyone needs to open their book, which means they know the liturgy. <laughs> Those are good things. They're just not the greatest good. That's God. And so again, if we're going to have monastic catechesis in the parish, where we're catechizing monks... Right? We are catechizing men and women of faith to be single-mindedly focused on God, that it cannot be about knowledge acquisition, but it also cannot just be about good moral formation. It has to be about the relationship and the single-minded focus that we are called to have on the greatest good, God himself. So again, monastic catechesis in the parish isn't about what book you're using. It isn't about the fact that Benedict teaches us things, for example, though he does. But in short, catechesis is monastic when it is single-mindedly focused on the one who can make us truly one, monastically speaking. Right? Catechesis is monastic when it is single-mindedly focused on he who is the one who can then make us truly one with him, but again, not alone, but one in community with one another. 
Thank you. Respondents up again. Thank you. Thank you, Father Greg. That was an excellent presentation. A wonderful way to encapsulate uh, what we've been trying to get at this weekend. So thank you so much. Uh, uh, very uh, thought-provoking. Thank you. The one question that came to me, or one thought that came to me, is you said somewhere along the lines that uh, in the parallels between the parish and the monastery, um, that the, the the monastery has an enclosure, and that enclosure is, is important to protecting the identity or the, the unity of that. Uh, one of the questions I have is, what? Where do we see the monastic enclosure in the parish? At what at what place do we see that? And my part of my sense is that we have the weakness of the church, monastically speaking, has been that we have eliminated any place of enclosure in, in many cases. And when you look at the early church, just came up yesterday in, in uh, one of Jerry's talks that the, uh, for instance, the Eucharist was closed yeah. to to the the belief, to the, uh, the baptized initiated community, uh, and even like the kiss of peace and things like that, which were all symbolic of cultivating that unity. It was so important to have that enclosure for the church to be the church, and so I'm wondering if that if that like how do we apply that yeah. in in, a, in our if we're trying to parallel nice. it, what does it look yeah. like in the church today? I guess. Yeah, that's that's a great question. So if we hearken back to like the you know the Willow Creek experiment, which they themselves then evaluated to say it was a failed experiment, right? Every service we were so seeker sensitive that we never formed anyone, right? We were miles wide and an inch deep, right? They said that themselves. Um, so in one sense, like we so eliminated enclosure that everyone was just trampsing around everywhere on the monastery grounds, right? There was, you know, everyone was a visitor. No one actually belonged there in one sense or something like that. Uh, another thing is a more recent uh, example for me. So uh, we at Epiphany had decided, okay, Advent 1, 2019, uh, is when we're going to adopt the, the final book of Common Prayer, right? It's been approved by the bishops. We're going to go with Advent 1 as our launch date. Um, and so... We rent a space, but my motivation was not the rental space. So for years, we had been using one of the trial liturgies with permission from the bishop, and we had printed up booklets because there was nowhere you could get that trial liturgy, right? It was just an earlier version of what's now known as the Anglican Standard Text. But you couldn't get it, so we had these booklets. And so people got used to grabbing a booklet when they came in, and even if they knew it, it was just habitual. You grab it, you know, and over the years, the booklets got worn out, so we reprinted them. They got worn out. We reprinted them. They got carried off. We reprinted them. So now all of a sudden we're going to switch to the 2019 Book of Common Prayer, and you can buy one of those. So I said, we're going to expect people to buy one because the Eucharistic booklet suggested that this is not connected to anything except this service. But owning a book kind of says, like, guess what? The Eucharistic service is just one part of that rule of life that you should be living. Right? So we were going to teach on this. We were going to encourage it. And then we said, you can't afford it? That's okay. We're going to give you one. So it's not a money issue. We gave out books of common prayer. Right? People stepped up, gave generously. We gave out books of common prayer. I know we're recording this, but I'm going to say it anyway. There was pushback. But why aren't we having booklets? You, why should we be expected in the Book of Common Prayer? 
I'm sorry, I don't understand your question. The, the point was, and, and then they started saying, like, but what about visitors? I said, what about visitors? We, we are going to do, in fact, visitor booklets. We, just, we have to concede that we're going to have visitors, but they're going to be annotated about why we do what we do. Why do we cross ourselves here? What's the colors about? Those kinds of things, right? And, and visitors can come, and we're going to encourage them to actually take the book with them so they can read about the Anglican practices at home. And we're going to have like half a dozen actual prayer books on the back table. So maybe after people have been visiting a while and feel more comfortable with picking it up and kind of seeing what else is in here, <laughs> right? Or, oh my goodness, I ran out of home so quickly tonight I forgot my book of common prayer. That's okay, there's one on the back, you know, back table. The point is, is they thought, yeah, but guests are going to feel like they're going to look around and see all of us holding books of common prayer and they're not going to have the same thing that's going to make, the, that they're going to, then they're going to be a guest. Everyone's going to know they're a guest. I'm thinking to myself, aren't we going to know that anyway? Like, that's the point. Like, I don't recognize that person. They're a guest. So the point was, like, almost like, again, this, this tendency to say, you know, let's not, let's not look, like, let's not have our own enclosure. Let's not look like we're the ones that live here all the time. But we got to make sure we're always thinking about all the people, which is true. Of course, we want to think about the guests. But I also want a guest to go, like, what's that? Oh, that little service you had, it comes out of this. And this, this is called the Book of Common Prayer, and it's got other things in it, like how to pray every day, those kinds of things, right? I, I, I'm ready for that conversation. Um, but so the, the question's a good one because I, that gave me, you know, I had to start thinking, like, what are we communicating? And I decided to communicate, like, yeah, there's a group of us that live here. This, this is our monastery, if you will, to, to now use that language. Like, this is our enclosure. We, we live in the enclosure. And... and we want to invite you in to that enclosure. So, I mean, I don't know how to say that other than, like, the enclosure might just be the parish. Like, it is, it is the place where we do idiosyncratic things. But we invite you into it, and, like, you can join this monastery and come back here in the enclosure with us. If, you know, I don't, I don't know, because... And I, and I want to not to try to talk too much about Thornton, because if you haven't read Martin Thornton, this might not make a lot of sense, but you know, at least some of us. So, so Martin Thornton, this great Anglican pastoral theologian, he basically had a theology that he called the theology of the remnant. And to oversimplify it, it's basically like, you got 100 people in your parish, 15 of them really care, 85 are somewhat ambivalent, you know, um, focus on the 15. They're the ones that are going to come to the offices, they're the ones that are going to, they're the ones like, so I, I get that. But I don't want to think of the enclosure as like the holy huddle of people that come to the, mid, the midweek feast day Eucharist. Like, oh, now we see who the committed people are. But I mean, thinking about maybe the, maybe the narthex is the only part that's not the enclosure or something like that. And then everything else is the enclosure. Yeah, I was just going to, to add to that last thing. I think that the temptation in, I, I come out of an evangelical background, temptation in the evangelical world is to, to make, for instance, maybe like the small group the enclosure or to make some other specialized program or ministry the enclosure. But the danger of that is that it isn't the Eucharistic enclosure. Right. It, you have yeah. some alternative thing you're creating, mm-hmm. which then makes for elitism to be the thing rather than the thing, which would right. be a Eucharistic participation of some kind. Right. That, that's been my own experience. But I still think that it's what's lacking even in many churches that practice, let's say, a fencing of the table of some kind, is there's still not an experience of, of an enclosure. It's like, yep. to your point of, you know, yeah. the book or the people who actually dwell here, this is our monastery. Yeah. So I think and there's some tension between a good monastery obviously practices hospitality, uh, as, as you're talking about as well, too. So it's not a holy huddle or a club. 
but there is a clear enclosure and outside. And I, the balance of all that is really interesting and yeah. it's very nuanced for how a church does this, I think, particularly in our, in our era in which inclusivity is, is such a hot buzzword or, and an issue of like electricity almost in our, in our yeah. culture right now. Yeah. Know? Let me add a little, another co- quick comment. Uh, I don't want to take the time away from you guys commenting as well, but so it makes me think of like um, Prince of Peace Abbey in Oceanside. Um, the Benedictine community. It's actually closer to my home, but it's not where I'm an oblate, but I go down there quite a bit for different reasons. And um, on about the second time I was there, uh, so I'll tell you, there is an enclosure. And, and there, I mean, I hardly know any of the monks. Uh, St. Andrew's has a much, uh, their enclosure is much more porous. I mean, it's not. You don't go into the enclosure. But, but at Prince of Peace, it's literally walls and doors, right? So I have no idea what their actual monastery proper looks like. But here's the thing. The church is, the sh- is a shared space. That church, the church isn't behind the enclosure, right? So um, and, and to the point that they, they, the rule of Benedict says if you make a mistake at the daily office, you have, to, you have to make amends for it. And in the rule of Benedict, that means lying across the door jam of the chapel while people step over you on the way out. And you keep laying there until the abbot kind of says, get up, that's good. <laughs> Prince of Peace. A monk made a mistake. Everyone heard it. After the office, he was kneeling. And I watched. I sat there on purpose and watched. And he kneeled and he kneeled. And then I noted the abbot tapped something and he got up. So that's a monk living by the rule of Benedict publicly if you had the eyes to see it. Right? So, like, enclosure, but there he is living out his monastic vocation in front of everyone that was in that church. And so, maybe that's a way to think of, like, our, our church is not the enclosure. It's not the service. That's not the enclosure. Um, which maybe, like, could get at, well, the people that know how to do the liturgy and those of us are learning. But maybe the, I mean, I could imagine the, the equivalent of the enclosure could be something else in the parish. I'm just not sure what I could name that right, right now as, you know. Like the vestry meeting, because no one wants to come to those unless you're, <laughs> unless you're on the vestry. Except Lee's last week looked like a great meal. I kind of was like, oh, I wish I was on the vestry at Christ Church in Waco. So. <laughs> I was wondering if you'd comment on um, something that I don't think showed up in the paper, but it was um, it's kind of Martin Thornton's idea, but, but it's that I think it's prevalent in, mon- in monasticism that the monastic life, and I would say as well just the Christian life, is lived as a vicarious offering on behalf of the world, um, and, and therefore um, we really do need to see the, the work, um, the, the labor of prayer and the, and the labor of work as something that is done on behalf of the world, and wondered mm-hmm. if you know the work of a parish yeah. being done on behalf of the world is something that resonates with you. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great question. So... Um, there is a sense where it used to be in older writings on monasticism, its justification was often captured in this sense, well, the church is called to pray and most people just can't do that without ceasing, so the monks kind of stand in place you know, for all Christians and do that, for example, or something like that. Uh, and then the, there's also this... Uh, you model your, you know, they become an example to everyone else. And, and I don't want to disparage that. I mean, my main argument for why there should be traditional monasticism 
in, in monastic communities is just because men and women continue to be called by God to live that form of monastic life. And so we need to have monasteries so they can live out their vocation, just like we will continue to have the institution of marriage, <laughs> the sacrament of marriage, so that people can live out that calling and all the other things. But, um, you know, all the other ways we can think of that. But I'm also very open to this idea. I'll use an even stronger word. I'm open to the idea of monasticism as being like a kind of reparation. So there was a community in the 19th century England called the Community of the Reparation of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. All right? I, I was at Pusey House, Oxford uh, in October writing, going through their archives and writing an article on this that hopefully... I mean, it will be published eventually. I'm just still not sure where yet. Um, but the, the point is, is this community was founded by a priest, A.B. Goulden, because uh, state church, 19th century, lots of people baptized, but not catechized, not living very well as Christians. So he thought, let's found a monastic order where the men and women, it was going to be a mixed order, where the men and women will be dedicated to um, the monastic life in such a way that it will make up for that's what the theological concept of reparation is it will make up for all of the unworthy communi- communicants right the reparation of jesus in the blessed sacrament so they had a particular end in their mind all these people communing unworthily will make up for that not not advocating that uh, but but i'm advocating a theological thought process that could be similar to like yeah, these men and women are called into these communities. They, by default, become a model and example of certain things. But I'm also open to the, to the fact that, like, well, maybe they, that, that is the point. They, they can make up for, for the ways in which those of us that uh, are also called to be single-minded, but the way that has to work itself out in our lives differently, right? I mean, I, you go and talk to monks. If you don't visit a monastery, visit a monastery and go long enough to get to know a monk or two. Get to know them well enough so they let their guard down a little. <laughs> and they'll say, oh my goodness, like, how, do, how do you do that? Like, marriage must be one of the most difficult, difficult things, you know? Like, I, that's amazing. And I'm looking like, how do you do this? How do you live with these, these people? And they're like, oh yeah, that's the worst part of the monastic life. It's all, it's all of these people that I live with. But it's also the greatest part of the monastic life, right, is all these people that I live with. Um, and so there is that sense of where monastic communities really do become um, examples for us and models for us. But, but I also think that they could, they could help make up for the ways in which we, um, also called to be monks of a different sort, um, fail to live fully into that. Because, again, what that emphasizes is the oneness, right? That's, that, that emphasizes the oneness of the church and the vocation that we all share to single-mindedness. Ask a clarifying question, sure. and similar to Jerry Sitzer, you can tell me how I'm wrong. Um, but I was curious, um, when I hear you talk and when I look at these notes, I just keep thinking about like a very almost Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, like sacramental theology um, of we are the body of Christ and we have to be unified as the body of Christ and that's how we participate 
in Christ is as his body, and then that's how we participate in the Trinity. You know, like there's this bridge that's sort of built. And so then that necessitates that we dwell in unity because it's our unity in the body of Christ. And that is how we really are in relationship with Christ is as a body, not just as individuals. And um, that feels like monasticism opportunes a unique unity um, where you're sort of all in this similar stage of, well, you've chosen the same stage of life. You know, you're of the same gender. You're doing the same rhythms, you know. Um, and similar to Ryan, what you were saying about the enclosure of a parish, it's, it feels very difficult. What, what if you're in a parish where actually not everybody there has that sort of even desire for single-minded devotion, right? Like it's more like a therapeutic model of church, and then what do you do in that situation? Can you even can, could you legitimately be a monk in terms of monkhood of all believers if you actually aren't part of a worshiping community that's seeking single-mindedness? Yeah, great questions. And um, so I'm 48. Maybe it's just part of getting older, um, but I'm getting more and more firm in my convictions, theological convictions. Um, so this has been a big part of my... So I was on sabbatical in the fall, not just from Biola, but I got to take a four-month sabbatical from the parish um, over the course of 2018. I took it in a, a two-month block, June and July, came back for about six weeks, and then took another two months for different reasons. That worked out really good for the church, the parish, and me. But getting away from my parish was, you know, really great. And um, and I started really thinking about, you know, coming back around to just thinking about the church, you know, what, what is the church of Jesus Christ? And I mean, that's, this is, the, um, this is a theological project for me, not a, what should it, how it, how should it manifest itself? And so I'm just really hardening in my conviction. Um, the church is not a voluntary association, um, of people. And if it is, you should dispel that notion immediately. Um, this is probably where a lot of you are going to disagree with me, especially not Anglicans in the room, and that's fine. We can we can fight over is it Thai food or something like that. So um, there's no salvation outside the church. The church is the 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 thing that makes the sacramental life possible. It it is she is the dispenser of grace. Yes, God, I I'm, you know I think you understand what I'm saying. Um, in in that sense. I mean, that, that is what unites us. I mean, it's, so I this is a sacramental theology and a conviction. I mean, it's just the, the sacrament is the source and summit of the Christian life, uh, the Eucharist. So, first of all, uh, sorry if, if you're not, I, I just, I mean, I, I, I want every church to become a sacramental, you know, yeah, sorry. I mean, yeah, I'm not sorry, but sorry if you find this offensive, I guess, so. Like, I want every, I want every, like, I think the Church of Jesus Christ needs to get serious about, like, it's, it's who it is. It's theology, it's ontology. We need to get away from, you know, North America, the challenges of just becoming a, you know, therapeutic, a place to, to exercise some sort of therapy that makes people feel good. Um, we need to get away from thinking that uh, people really care what I say in my 50-minute sermon, which was, you know, 30 minutes too long anyway. And, um, I mean, seriously, like, we just need to get away from, like, this is not about me, this is about Jesus. Jesus has made himself available in the Eucharist through the bread and the wine. And I'm, gonna, I'm doubling down on that as a theologian and as a priest these days. And 
that is what will make the church one because we're gathered around the Eucharistic table as one. Um, and so uh, I, I'm just like, if you find yourself in a community where you can't practice single-mindedness, you should ask yourself if you're actually in the church or just a group of vol- people who voluntarily get together at that place at that time. That, that sounds harsh, and I don't mean it to be. I'm not really not trying to be judgmental. Um, I work at Biola. You know, I'm happy when my students just go to church. I don't even care which one it is, you know. Like, oh, you go to church? Awesome. You know, like, I love you, man. And I've been doing this long enough now where, I mean, I have more sad stories than happy stories about where alumni. I mean, Elizabeth, you're, you're a happy story. But there's a lot of sad stories about where my former students are at in their lives, and especially their relationship with God. So, again, like, no church community is perfect. That's not the point. But the church isn't about us. It's not about community. It's about communion with God, right? So if you're only going to church for horizontal reasons, the people, the preaching, the, the this, the people make me feel good there. Like, that's, that's great. It, it's nice that that could also happen, but you're in church primarily for the vertical dimension of the relationship with God. It seems like something extremely crucial that you're saying, though, is also if you're just going to church for the vertical dimension, um, confessionally, when I started dating Ryan, um, I told him, I'm just here for the body and the blood. I'm really not here to get to know anybody. You know, like, I, 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 I knew. I didn't teach was... her that. I didn't. <laughs> I know who did, though. I work with him. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally, <laughs> I'm totally kidding. But, uh, but, but, I, but I think I, I had to, I had to, and I'm still growing in, in some of these thoughts for a long, long trajectory of growth. But, um, but it seems like something extremely crucial that you're saying, though, is it's not just about I go to church that I can have my private worship time with Jesus. No, no, that's and, the, the, you know. that turns the parish into a chapel, and it turns the priest into a confector of the sacrament. It's still about the people, but it's the, it's the people because of it flows out of my relationship with God to the people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, right? And love your neighbors yourself. The Christian tradition says you can't love your neighbors yourself if you're not loving God. So we focus on that so that, like, like the image of a fountain, like from the fountainhead, the source of God himself, right? And I'm, I'm just thinking John 17 here. Father, may they be one as we are one. Does that scare you? Like, what is Jesus praying there? Like, like the way that we are three persons yet one in the Godhead, that's what we want the church to be. Well, that's not going to... That's not going to be, that's not going to happen just because we all agree that we like this church led by these people at this place at this time, right? The volunteer associationism kind of approach. That is, that is beyond us. That is way beyond our pay grade. And I need to, to get into the church, let, let God be the active agent in my change. And I will naturally then find myself loving my brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, wanting to be with them, um, and I, I do think it just flows from that. And I and I think the moment, you know, it becomes lots of other options. You know, I just think like you can have good, rich experience. So again, this is where like, you know, people could. This is why I'm not I'm not against non-sacramental churches, right? It's just like I think you know like they there's a way in which I think you could do that well still. Um, 
you know, well, there is no such thing. Like, you know, so um, anyway, I think you get what I'm saying is like it, 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 it's not one or the other. I mean, this is, so I said to, I said to Christina, I was so, fr- this is after, I didn't talk about this with my son at the, at, at, at the meal, but later I said to Christina, I said, man, I get why people who live close enough to a monastery just make the monastery their church. First of all, everyone who shows up, the monks, they're serious. I'm serious. And it's not a church. I actually don't have to care about who else is in the room, right? I mean, it, it, it becomes it becomes that thing you just described, and that's terrible. That's not what, the, I mean, local parish ought to be the place where, we, where we're, we're literally fed and also where we grow in community with other. It's the Book of Common prayer, not just because it was in English, but, you know, it's what we're all doing together. So. We've got time for um, one or two quick questions. Hi, Reverend. Father? Reverend? I don't know. Greg's fine. <laughs> Hi, Greg. Um, one of the things that I was struck by uh, in this talk was your emphasis on the, the end goal single-mindedness with God, and also that there seems to be some tension with loving, learning to love the rule is the way that it forms us. And I'm wondering, in the midst of that, how do you, for those of us nerds here who are learning to love the rule, how do you spot when the rule begins to serve the rule rather than the end? When, yeah. Are you thinking of the rule of Benedict in particular? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. When when, when the, that thing becomes the end? When yeah. when the, the liturgy becomes the end. Oh, sure. Or, you know, yeah. whatever our common practice becomes the end. Um, yeah. So that we get distracted, almost fair say, Cole, maybe. Oh, yeah. Great, great. This is perfect. I come out of a fundamentalist background. So, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> where it was about keeping the rules. Uh, the problem was no one had ever framed for... Actually, I was raised as a Southern Baptist, but then my faith, oddly, my faith came alive in a fundamentalist Baptist church. Uh, I found my way there because of a girl, but, um, <laughs> who I did not marry, um, though that my wife also comes out of a fundamentalist Baptist background. But in there, it was very rule-based. I mean, it was legalistic, and that was the end. So I've experienced this firsthand. No one had ever framed it for me that burning my you know, Van Halen cassettes was a good thing. Oh, was that a bad reference, Van Halen? No one really. Def Leppard? I don't know. I'm trying to... Uh, Leonard Skinner, no, that's the wrong wrong culture. Grateful Dead. Um, Journey. I'll pick the Bay Area bands. Uh, you know, no one said, like... Everyone said, burn it. It's bad. It's satanic. But no one, like, why? By the way, I never burned them. So, um, no one could frame why. So, what was missing was that telos. So, I think it is very true that, that the rules can become an end in themselves, and it results in legalism. The, the problem there just seems to me a simple one, not because we're not prone to fall into that trap because of our sin, but again, speaking in theological terms, well, because like behind that rule as a means, as a scopos, is God himself, the telos. And, and, and that's a vision issue. So George Herbert has a great poem called The Pilgrimage. Where he, you should, you should go read it. It's amazing. So he, the image is like he climbs up this hill. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's rough and it's dangerous and it's hard. And he thinks the whole point is it's, a, it's an image of the, the Christian life. And he's like, the, the assumption is he's going to hit the summit. 
And that's like he's, you know, it's the image of the ladder, the summiting of the Christian life. The problem is when he gets to the top of the hill, all he finds is water that's like brackish and bitter. The problem is, is he didn't know that beyond that hill, there was another hill. So I was at a monastery once in France, convinced I could get to the top of this alpine mountain. It looked really close. I never made it because they just kept going. Like right when I thought I was at the top, oh, are you serious? You know, like, okay, I'm turning around. That's, you know, I'm going to be lost here soon. So, um, so part of it is, is we do mistake that as an end, but it's because we've lost the, the we, we either don't know, we haven't discerned, but, uh, but theologically we know the, the end is God as a person. So if you, if you're making a lesser God, sorry, a lesser good to use Augustinian language, if you're, if you're making a lesser good into the greatest good, then you just need to reorient your vision that to him who is the greatest good. So I, again, I'll make a plug here for Eucharistic, like on the altar every week, I get a vision of the greatest good. So it's rewriting, it's refocusing my vision every week on he who is the end. But let me also say that like an essential part of any liturgy should be the sending out into the world to do the work that God has given us today, right? I mean, even implied in the post-communion prayer in most of its forms, and this would be in any, like Jamie Smith, I wrote a quote yesterday where he thinks the sending part is an essential element of the forming people. You send us out to the world to do the work you've given us to do, you know, that God's given us to do. This isn't the end. This is, this is the nourishment I've now received to go out and do that work that God has given me to do. And that means connecting it now to the beginning of the liturgy, loving the Lord with my heart, soul, and mind, and my neighbor as myself. It doesn't mean, okay, Greg, now go out and be a good professor this week. Yes, it means that, but it primarily means go out and love God and love neighbor. So, again, the liturgy is already refocusing me all the time back on the telos of God. And any scopoi that I make into that telos, again, to use that as Cassianese, but if I think in Augustinian terms, don't make the lesser goods into the greatest good. Let he who is the greatest good be the greatest good. So, I mean, I don't know how to stop doing that because we're sinful people. We'll keep doing that. But, but part of that is because we want to domesticate God. I need God to make sense to me and to fit, right? Um, and God just is not going to do that. And that's, I think that's the, with the fundamentalist approaches. Like, God fits. I can check things off. Did I not listen to the wrong music this week? Check right? Did I pray this week? Check. And that's, that's just bad. The moment, again, you're doing that, you've lost sight of that this is about a person, not about the means to that person. That's good. Let's give our, our presenters another hand here.